Imagine a world in which post-traumatic stress no longer robs from millions who suffer. You don't want to get help because you're embarrassed. You don't want to tell people the dark stuff that you've went through. That stigmatism of you can't talk to people it is so true. Post-traumatic stress is not a disorder. It's an injury that can be healed quickly so that those who suffer get back to thriving in their families, communities, and mission. And I said, I yeah. don't want to, I, I can't, I don't want to live this trauma again. Yeah. And he goes, yeah. you don't have to. Yeah. And I said, yeah. what? The experts, they forgot to tell me I can heal. I didn't know that I can get rid of PTSD. Each week, we tell a skeptical world what is possible with stories of those who have successfully cured their trauma. I just remember being able to stand by the water and look up at the sky and hear the noises, and I didn't think they were gunshots. I was like, those are Disney fireworks. I don't even know what to imagine for myself now, my future, because I have one. This is Life After PTSD. I want to welcome everybody to another episode of Life After PTSD. My name is Jeff McLaughlin, your host from Orlando, Florida, as always. And with me, Carrie Russo. No, wait a second. You did not just jump in and let me not say, all right, whatever. That's cool. That's awesome. Carrie, we have an amazing guest on the show today that I brought on to do an intervention with you. Okay. Because Carrie, you have a problem and it's called your <laughs> cell phone. <laughs> Dr. Anna Lemke, <laughs> psychiatrist at Stanford University, specializing in addiction medicine and the con- one of the contributors to the Social Dilemma, the Netflix documentary that is absolutely making waves and is is wrecking me right now for sure. And, uh, and, Carrie, and Carrie, actually, you saw it first. I right? did. You did. did. So let's welcome Dr. Anna. Anna, thank you for being on with us today. We appreciate your time with us. Oh, sure. I'm happy to be here. (laughs) So as we get started today, um, just full disclosure to the audience, I got to spend, um, I don't know, an hour or so on uh, on a call with you last week and just kind of chatting and conversing and we were working on another show. And uh, it's it's been a pretty transformative week already in, in our family's life. And uh, we found Anna because of watching The Social Dilemma. It wasn't Carrie that was the first one that kind of recommended it to me. But, you know, she just, you know, well, how, like if somebody you were looking Hold on. If you were looking at your social media, you would have seen I did it first because I did put it on social media. So maybe I'm not as bad as you <laughs> on my social it. media and I take breaks from time to time. <laughs> that sounds so <laughs> self-righteous. <laughs> anyway, the buzz is out there, guys. I mean, you know, the buzz has been out there and I, I feel like it's when one person talks about it, then another person and eventually it's, it's programmed into your brain. Okay. This is something apparently that I need to watch. And so I watched it with my wife and I'm five minutes into this thing, not even starting to write down names of people that I said, man, I want to reach out to some of these guys because I loved, um, the heart. And, and in fact, Anna, I, w- I will let you, if you would, if you would sort of talk about the genesis of your involvement of the film, but also how you would kind of summarize it for somebody that's not, maybe if they've not even heard of it, or certainly they haven't seen it, how would you summarize the film and how did you get involved with it? Sure. So, um, so I'm a psychiatrist and I'm an addiction medicine specialist. And so I have been both interested in and researching and worried about our pathological attachment to the internet, to technology, to our smartphones for probably about 20 years now. Um, And it originally came out of seeing patients coming in to my clinic, seeking help for all kinds of things, depression, anxiety, um, addiction to drugs and alcohol, but also increasingly um, patients coming in seeking help with pathological gambling or pathological pornography engagement or pathological shopping or pathological social media engagement. And just beginning to realize that the technology had not only created access to traditional drugs like cocaine, cannabis, alcohol, but also had created brand new drugs that didn't exist before and made these drugs so much more accessible with this kind of portable little device that even those individuals who are not necessarily vulnerable to addiction previously now found themselves engaging in a kind of a compulsive, overconsumptive way. Um, so that it really, st- my, my sort of awareness of the problem, my interest in the problem stemmed originally from my clinical work, but also um, I am a parent and I was raising, have been raising small children, uh, now not so small, now I have teenagers over the last 20 years and, um, you know, have found it increasingly challenging like most parents 
to um, make sure my kids are engaging in a healthy and not self and other destructive way with their computers, their laptops, their phones. So the, the, that's the origin of my interest. If I had to summarize um, the social dilemma and its contribution, I think most importantly, it just got a very important discussion going around how we are using these devices and that as wonderful as this technology is, there is a dark side and that we're now um, you know, becoming aware of just what that dark side entails and that we're probably looking at one of the major social problems of the next century. So this is a, a new problem and it's not going away any, anytime soon. And it's a problem that will be solved um, I think much the way that climate change will be solved or just pollution in general, if you don't want to use the climate change terminology, that this is a problem that we have to individually change our behavior, but that that alone will not be sufficient because there are also these very large profit-driven corporations that have changed the environment, the world we live in, and they must also be held accountable. So just like with climate change, I need to think about, you know, can I walk instead of drive? Can I use a cloth bag instead of a plastic bag? But at the same time, we have to make sure that Exxon Energy and Mobile Corporation and, you know, all of these discarded devices that are just getting dumped in the ocean or dumped somewhere in Africa, like they, those corporations also have a responsibility. It's the same thing with this problem. And I think the social dilemma really highlights that it's not just the impact on our individual brains and what we can do in our own behavior, but also what these companies are doing and how they've intentionally made the devices addictive and how the whole infrastructure is created to keep us locked into a kind of a pathological engagement that also kind of tilts our democracy too, because then we're being influenced in a sort of echo chamber by information that's not a level playing field. So that's sort of a my summative of um, of kind of what I think the contribution is of the social dilemma. Yeah, I think it's an amazing contribution, but I also feel like it's such a big problem. Like I already felt like that. And when you just put it in the climate change, I went, oh wow, it's that's so true. It's mm-hmm. it's individual and it's also global. And so we right. have to be responsible responsible individually. But then also hold other people account, hold these companies accountable. Yes. However, you know, I, I will tell you, I feel like on an individual basis, um, I can remember years ago when my oldest son had a cell phone I, and I needed to put him on restriction for some reason, you know, he had done something and um, somebody was picking him up and they couldn't, they had a change in plans and they couldn't then get him. So I just say that to say we've become so dependent on them just as it's almost like, well, we have to have water. Why well, you know, it, it, I mean, my daughter the other day called, literally called me because we have limits on her phone. And she said, mom, I need this app open. And I said, well, why? Because I'm with my friends and I can't hang out with them if I don't have this app. We're all, I was like, you're with your friends. Go be with your friends. <laughs> but I thought, you know, what, what are we coming to where we feel like we have to have this? And, and what, scares me as a parent. And I think that's, I heard you say, I heard that loud and clear, you saying, hey, I found this because of my practice, but also I have kids and I wanted them to use this responsibly. And, but what is responsibly? What is, you know, how much is too much? And, and I thought too, as we're sitting here listening to you and we're both really excited about this, both of us looked at our phones. Now I think we're both looking up, like I was looking up (laughs) you know, best quotes from social dilemma. (laughs) And I think he was doing the same thing, but it's like, oh my goodness, you know, five minutes and we're both on our phones. Mm -hmm. That's a secret. Who started it? That's the question. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, so Carrie, right away, as you've heard that, that sort of the opening, the opening statements here, you know, what are your thoughts on on these problems, like personally for you, I'm not trying to make this curious intervention. I'm just saying <laughs> My in intervention, general. Yeah. Well, yeah. no, I, I, more so I, I do remember us processing later before this call, we were talking about like some of the key things in the social dilemma being, you know, where you had the trauma of these kids that were on social media and they were having, what having surgery to sort of change their likeness, their image to sort of look like, I mean, just crazy kind of stuff that, you know, 
And, and, and by the way, if anybody's listening, I, I don't mean crazy to put anybody down. I'm talking about crazy like, oh my gosh, what kind of world are we living in? Well, well right? let's, let's face it though. I'll, I'll, I'll never forget. I, I was at a eating somewhere and this these two women were talking and I was much younger than I am now. And these women were probably my age actually now, but they were talking about having photos and the person was going to Photoshop something, you know, on their to make them look better. And this was the early days of Photoshop, right? And I was sitting there by myself as lunch listening to this. And I remember thinking, wow, years from now, they're going to think, oh, I wish I still looked like that. And I want to say to them, you never did. You never looked like that. (laughs) And I think about that with, with what we do now with, you know, um, fixing our pictures and making our, you know, Zoom. The other day I, I was on Zoom and I have the um, filtered view of Zoom where it makes your look softer. And um, and I looked at myself, I was like, man, oh, I, I like this this lipstick. And then I walked in the bathroom, I was like, oh yeah, that's not really me in that picture. <laughs> that's filtered. But that's just one small little piece of these kids taking pictures of themselves. What do you see? You know, so I, I definitely see a problem. I mean, all day, every day, we have to be on our phones, right? We, you know, I think of taking a break from social media and I think, well, I can't work. Like I have to do this for work. Yeah. And of yeah. course now, um, even with our jobs, if we're doing marketing or we, there's no end, you can now do it 24 seven. Right. It's not like, because you can do it on social media. And so there's right. no end. Um, and, and you can, for counseling, you know, I've learned well, we let, overseas let, people. Let, and, let me add something there too. Okay. Full confession. I wasn't looking up quotes for social dilemma. When my phone was going off, it was an unknown number. Now it's the person we're going to be doing a call with. Uh, later, but it was a number that I didn't know. Now, Dr. Anna, I'm just curious to know, we get dopamine when we get notifications, right? We get dopamine when we get text messages from somebody we want to get a good response from or whatever it is. When we sort of get that like freaking out, who is this? Like, who is that? Like, I, I feel like it was almost like an instant like fight or flight response. Like, mm-hmm. we're not designed for this. Like, mm-hmm. I don't need to be worrying about who's calling me all the time. Can you speak to that right now? Because I think it's like positive and negative sort of, bo- you know, bursts of these things that, that people get. Is that true? Or am I, am I just crazy here? Or is it both? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I think, I mean, you guys have said a lot of interesting and important things. Maybe I can just go through them one by one. So, Carrie, Carrie, be careful. She's a psychiatrist. You're going to get diagnosed. <laughs> oh, no. I only do that when, you kidding. know. I'm kidding. But I mean, I, I think first I would want to validate how true it is that this technology is deeply embedded in our lives yeah. and that we essentially can't function, especially as professionals. And in many cases, one could argue as parents, without these devices, because it's just become part of how we do things. So I think that that is really true, um, which means that one of our major tasks as a society going forward will be to define together a new etiquette and new standards around what is proper use of these devices and when are they absolutely necessary and when are they really not. Um, so, so that's the first thing. But I think I would also say that I do think that people rationalize their use in ways that are not justified. So they convince themselves that it is essential to check the device or to go you know, onto Facebook or to answer the call from a number they don't recognize yeah. um, because they must do it in order to be a good professional or be a good parent or make sure their kids are safe or on and on when in fact that's not really true and it's an illusion of keeping our kids safe or it's an illusion of being a productive worker and so I think that's really important to verify too that and it's not until again which is why I I, I so recommend some time away from the device because when we're caught up in it everything seems like an emergency but when we step away, we're really able to parse out, you know, no, that I don't need to be checking that often or in that way. I really, my kid really can go out and not necessarily be tracked by me every second or respond. You know, I mean, we all grew up, all of us here of an age, we grew up without phones or devices. You know, we made it. Do you know what I mean? And But somehow we've convinced ourselves that our kids can't even walk outside the house unless... They have a way of calling 911. 
So I think I think that that's really important to to establish. The the thing about you know um, getting a number and or an alert and having sort of sometimes having this kind of euphoric dopamine high from it because it's reinforcing. And other times having it be kind of a fight or flight, like, oh, no, disaster, pending disaster. What's really interesting about the dopamine reward pathways in the brain is that they're as likely to be triggered by an extreme stressor as they are by an extremely pleasurable activity. So, for example, in animal studies, if you expose a rat to cocaine by letting it press a lever and you stick a probe in its brain and measure dopamine release, you see a huge spike in dopamine release as soon as that cocaine enters the system. But if you do a what's called a foot shock, electrify the floor and just violently foot shock that rat, you will see an identical spike in dopamine in the brain. So it's fascinating because, you know, this can we get addicted to stress? We can, you know, and we, we know that, right? Like adrenaline junkies is a is a phrase that we've coined and accepted. And we kind of know what we mean by that. So and and the other really interesting thing about what is reinforcing is that rewards that are unpredictable are more reinforcing than rewards that are predictable. So for example, if you look at gambling addiction, what gamblers will tell you is that they're more engaged and more addicted, feeling that feeling that they want when they're actually losing than when they're winning. Because all of a sudden, you know, the uncertainty of their monetary rewards goes way up because now they're in the hole. So that's really true with social media. Like, you know, we post a picture and we don't know, will people hate it? Will they like it? Will it go viral? And part of that uncertainty is part of what drives the motivation. I I, I am sort of one of these guys that likes to like, you know, make the extreme correction of sorts. And, uh, you know, obviously, really? Yeah. You know, well, (laughs) well, because here's the, okay. Let me, let, let, full disclosure, let me speak. You guys were talking off air about kids and everything. So we've got five littles and, you know, I, Carrie knows this about me that, you know, I'm very dedicated and passionate about the things that I do and often motivated to work harder and harder just because, especially in, in times like COVID times where, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty and you don't know where security is coming from. And so it's very hard for me. I love my kids. I adore my kids. My kids, every single one of them is so unique. My oldest is 13. And so, you know, I, we're just at that fun age where everybody's fun and every, you know, not, not saying that teenagers aren't, all right? I worked with teenagers for years in a different capacity, all right? I love teenagers too, but our kids are fun. And, um, but Carrie knows, like, my heart of hearts, I struggle. Like, I lament at the end of many, many days of just going, man, I, I just don't know how to disconnect, right? I don't know how to be all there and just you know, my son, my middle son right now is trying to learn how to rollerblade and just, and just throw the phone inside and not worry about work for a few minutes and just, just teach him how to rollerblade that, that sort of thing. And I, 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 I can't be alone in that. Help us help people like us. What, what would you say to, to people like me? Like, what are some of those actionable steps that we can go? I, I know it doesn't fix things overnight. You know, I know it takes some time to sort of rechannel those neural pathways, but how do we start? I mean, how, how do we do it in those first couple of hours and, and days or whatever, where it's like everything in me wants to do this, but everything in my physiology is like begging for, you know, thoughts. And, and I have to add, as you were saying um, about the dopamine reward pathway and that if it's unpredictable, I think is what you said, if, if the reward yeah. is unpredictable, you're not sure that you get, what, repeat that to me because it's- you get, you get even more even of more. dopamine. So as you were sitting here, my phone was going off right? In my lap. I did turn it off and I actually threw it over. So it's yeah, not going to bother me a, anymore. Was... <laughs> but my I phone... hope your screen broke. I just hope she's getting a new phone today. Anyway, so my, right. <laughs> my phone was going off in my lap and I was thinking, oh, what time is it? Oh, wait, am I supposed to pick up the kids? Did I, did I forget something? At, who's, and, then, and then it called again and it, I, I recognized it's my husband's. I know the ring was clo- close and quiet enough, but I still knew, oh, that's my husband's ring. Oh, he's called twice. Okay. He may need something. So I answered it. Right. And then mm. he, you know, kind of, he saw we were doing something, but uh, I was like, why? And I, but I was feeling the anxiety. If I couldn't answer, I was like, no, I'm on a podcast about social. I can't go on my phone. I can't answer. (laughs) But I was, and you were saying that, that, but it was unpredictable. I was like, I'm not sure what's on the other end, but it didn't matter. Right. My kids, I'll say this one more thing that I want her to talk about. My kids 
their school made a rule last year or two years ago that the children could not have their phone in the school at all. I mean, they finally acquiesced and let them lock it in their locker all day. But if it was seen out, you it was taken and it was absolute. The problem mm-hmm. was the parents, I think the problem was that the parents spoke up and said, no, we want to be able to access our kids if we need to. And I right. said, and my, and my kids were like, but mom, what if I need to call you? I said, well, when I was a kid and I needed to call my parents, I went to the office and they let me use the phone. Mm-hmm. That is so embarrassing. That's, mm-hmm. They will let you. There's a lot of loving people there. They care about you mm-hmm. and you're not going to be hurt. But mm-hmm. the school had enough parents, and I think that's how it happened. The school had enough parents that they changed the rule. And the kids yeah. still aren't supposed to use their phones, mm-hmm. but they now have them and they do. Um, yeah. So, yeah, what is the answer for us? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, let me say neither of you is obviously an isolated example of these kinds of struggles. This is exactly what we're all dealing with all the time. Yeah. As professionals, as as parents, you know, where do we draw the line? Um, One of the things that I always try to keep in my mind is that whatever I model for my children, the way that I use my phone or my devices will be a much more powerful impact on their behavior than anything I could ever say to them or yeah. anything that any documentary could ever explain to them. Yeah. So I hope that will serve as motivation for folks who are listening, that we really want to model you know, what we want our kids to be doing. So then we need to think about um, just how important it is to be present for each other you know, to be truly and fully emotionally present is one of the greatest gifts we can give any other human being because it's our precious time. And time is something that we can't get back, that we can't buy. It's, it's really everything that we have. So when we are leaving the present moment to engage with our phone, we literally disappear. I mean, we people can tell we're so sensitive. We're so socially... Um, primed to notice even micro adjustments in eye contact, facial expression, that when people check out on their phones, even if they try to do it, you know, sort of surreptitiously, so you can't know, people can tell even small, I bet you a small child could instantly tell a child who didn't even know what a phone was. I bet you their biorhythms, their heart rate, their breathing rate changes when a parent temporarily checks out on their device. So if you think about it like that, I think it may change the meaning behind it and the motivation to really stay present and be present. Not that it's easy, but, you know, if that's the time that you're spending with your children, um, gosh, you know, we all want to make the most of that time, right? We want to be as present as we can be. We really want to listen, we really want to listen. Listening is really hard, you know, that, but it's so important. And kids can feel it when we're not present. Now, we have millennia of pa- parents checking out in all kinds of different ways, right? Kids know when their parents are intoxicated, right, on drugs and alcohol. I and mean, that's a form of neglect and abandonment. And I think it's not unreasonable to make that link between being on our devices as parents and being intoxicated because it has a similar kind of checked out, distracted quality to it. By the way, I, I'm not perfect at this. You know, it's not like I'm saying I never, I'm always the best listener and I'm always fully present, but I keep it in the front of my mind as a goal. And I compartmentalize. So I say to myself, you know what? I'm going to set aside this hour to go through my email and to answer. I don't actually, honestly, if you don't want to know the truth, I don't use a smartphone, so I don't text and things like that. But if I did, I would slot it in there. You know, I'm going to go through my text. So you condense that time. You focus on that activity. You answer all of those phone calls and texts and messages and what have you. Then you put it aside and then you're here, you know, you're, you're present for your child. And you demand the same of your child, okay? You demand that of me. So, you know, I, I'm, we're, we're talking right now. Please put the device away. Close your laptop. Let's be here for each other. We're having dinner right now as a family. It's, I know it's boring and you don't like the food. I get it. But let's be here now. You know, let's be fully present for each other 
at this time that we have together. And then we'll separate and you'll go to your laptop and I'll go to my phone and we'll do our devices because we all got to do it, right? It's embedded in our lives. But let's be more aware and conscious of what is lost when we check out midstream. That's a great place to take a break. And I have like the perfect, you know, just jumping off point when we come back after this break, because I'm going to ask you something, a pose that we all strike, I think most days with our devices in our hands. So let's give the listeners a breather. Thanks for hanging with us, guys. Coming back even stronger after the break, you are listening to Life After PTSD. Here we are back with Life After PTSD, having a great conversation with Dr. Anna Lemke, Stanford University, contributor to The Social Dilemma. Dr. Anna, literally last week after we were on the Zoom call or face to whatever we were on, next day, I'm driving home from here, actually, from the center. I'm driving home, and I got home at probably 11 o'clock at night. I'm driving through the neighborhood, about to make a left-hand turn into going down where our driveway is. And I saw a kid on a sidewalk on a skateboard, probably in the 16, 17 range and, um, you know, backpack on. And uh, as he's going across the street, he's halfway across the street, pulls phone out. And I don't know, it seemed like one of the streetlights was kind of out. It seemed especially dark. And then he pulls the phone out. You know, he's got it in that pose of just, you know, kind of down there by the waist looking up. And and then, boom, the big, you know, the big glow of light kind of lights up right there. And it occurred to me, it said, man, like, why? Why did he need to? Right in the middle of the intersection. He didn't stop. I mean, he kept going. So it was no inconvenience to me whatsoever. It was just sort of a sad look. And I feel like I feel like since we talked last, I keep seeing that everywhere. I see that pose. I mean, I saw a lot of it before. And we always noticed, you know, we're we're here in Central Florida. So we go to the theme parks and stuff like that. You see people where most of us used to stand in line and we played, you know, what's that little slap game? You know, you slap your, whatever it is. You put your hands out here and slap it. You know, people would do that kind of thing. Now everybody, mom, dad, the kids, the two-year-olds got an iPad in front of their heads. Like everybody's in that pose looking, looking down. My wife and I used to say that the movie, um, I think it's Pixar that did it, Wally. We always used to say when that thing came out that it was just prophetic. It was just like where we were headed and everything. And I'm like, we're there. Like we're in Wally world. Like no joke. <laughs> Not Walmart world, but you know, Wally world right here. Yeah, I agree. With screens agree. everywhere. Tell me, yeah. tell me about that. Not tell me. We talked about this before for the good of the audience, right? Mm -hmm. There's a reason he pulled that phone out of his pocket like that and probably did it 18 more times before he got home that night, correct? And if you could, could you speak to that? What is going on when that happens, when we're all doing that? Sure. Well, I mean, you know, in, in terms of thinking about what's happening in the brain, every time, so we are wired for millennia, you know, to be social creatures and to connect with each other. And that's mediated by all kinds of complex hormone systems, including something called oxytocin, which is a love hormone. And recently, a colleague of mine, Rob Belenka, was able to show that every time oxytocin, our love hormone is released, it actually leads to a release in dopamine in our brain's reward pathway. Um, which isn't really a surprise, like love and intimacy and connection are just deeply rewarding, always have been, always will be, and are fundamental to our survival because we're hive creatures. We need each other. We're not able to really survive and thrive in isolation. But what social media has done is really kind of distilled that rewarding aspect of human connection and turned it into a very potent drug such that every time we're checking, we get a real, little release of dopamine. And the more we check and the more we engage, the more dopamine we get. But our brains are very, very smart about adapting and down-regulating our own dopamine production and our own dopamine receptors when we're getting all this, you know, these hits of high, high dopamine from outside. Because we're not meant to be in an ecstatic state for a long period of time. We're, we're meant to achieve it, but not stay there. So if we try to stay there, our brains go, whoop, got to downregulate my own dopamine. So ultimately, we put ourselves into a dopamine deficit state such that when we're not engaged with that device, we're essentially in a clinical depression. We don't enjoy anything else. And we need to re-engage in order to get ourselves up there which is why a dopamine fast is so important. And by that, I mean a period of time where you actually fast from that high dopamine substance or behavior so that you can recalibrate and reset your pleasure pain, what I call the pleasure pain balance or your reward pathways mm -hmm. so that ordinary pleasures become 
enjoyable again, and so that you're not always compulsively wanting to re-engage with your, you know, addictive behaviors in order to just feel normal. And that's the essential neuroscience of addiction kind of distilled down. When you say dopamine fast and somebody's somebody's hearing that, you know, they think of all the different diets that are out there or whatever, you're like, maybe you should write a book. Well, actually, she is. <laughs> is your book done? I know it's not out yet, but have you finished it or are you still kind of finishing up some of the revisions? Where are you at Yes, with it? no, it's it's all done. It's done. It's, okay. Yep, it's called Dopamine Nation, yeah. Finding, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. Yeah. It's coming out next year. Um, it's coming out in August, mainly because there's a large backlog because of COVID. Oh. Um, yeah. In terms of book, books coming out, but it'll be, be out in August, published by Dutton Penguin Random House. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's available now for pre-order, but it basically talks about all the things we've been talking about, including dopamine fasting and yeah. other things. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just I have to interject something. I've become a bit of a a huge fan of audiobooks, and um, just because I love podcasting already, so I literally I knew because of our previous conversation, I knew that Dopamine Nation was not coming out till later. It had a pre-order. It's killing me right now. I'm like, oh my gosh, can we just speed up the months? I want to get it out because I really, really, really <laughs> want to read it. I'm so excited on there. And I have some credits on Audible that I pre-purchased and everything. So I'm like, I'm good. I already got it. I can get you know, it's great. Yeah. So what is um without obviously they they need to pick up that book when it comes out and, and that's gonna have a lot more information right there. Just you know, what are what are two or three or, or, or some basic steps? I don't know if I can put a number on those, if that would be fair to do for somebody who's hearing this right now and they're going, Man, I have a problem, and this is this is a traumatic problem of sorts. How you know what what does a dopamine fast look like for the average jo- uh, for the average Joe? Well, I mean, the dopamine fast is really first of all just thinking about what is that substance or that behavior where you feel you have an unhealthy attachment. Mm-hmm. So it's not it, this is not necessarily for people who are addicted, but just where you feel like God, you know, I, I just once I start using it, I can't stop. When I'm done, I feel a little bit worse about myself than sure. I did. When, and, I, and I just feel like it's compulsive. Take that behavior, whether it's a specific app on your phone or it's a specific type of food or whatever it is, um, and just, just get rid of it for a while. Now, how long? You know, I, I would say absolute minimum would be 24 hours. In some ideal world, it would be four weeks because four weeks – is the time that it really does take to kind of totally reset reward pathways so you're not in that constant state of thinking about it and craving. But what's so interesting about our phones is we always know where they are, right? It's like we have a whole lot of mental real estate occupied by the phone and where it is and what and is it beeping. And so even you're talking to me here now, but you're probably a part of your brain is thinking about my phone over there on the chair and what it's doing and who's trying. Like that's amazing. That in and of itself is amazing. So can you put it away long enough so that you kind of forget about it? Because if you can do that, then you get to that place where you reset those reward pathways. And then when you reincorporate that substance or that behavior back into your life, you can now put some roadblocks in there, right? So that, you know, it's not like you're never going to use it, but how can you reincorporate it in a way that's healthier that's more in line with your values and more consistent with your future goals. Because the truth is these devices take up an enormous amount of our time, give us the illusion that we're productive when in fact we're not really making anything. Mm. One specific recommendation you had talked about your family going to an amusement park and everybody, you know, on their phones instead of talking in the car or, you know, playing together in the line. Um, I really recommend technology and device-free family outings. Mm. So everybody leaves their device at home, including parents, so that you can't use them, so that you're forced to do something else. Or if you can, you know, rent, if you're going away to, um, I don't know, a home or an Airbnb or whatever, leave leave it all back at home. Don't let anybody have it. You'll find yourself playing Monopoly for the first time in five years, you know. It's, it's not that Monopoly is so much better than League of Legends inherently. I mean, they're both games. It's just that they're different types of games. And we want to make sure we're not just always playing one type of game, you know, online, especially with strangers. We want to make sure that our online engagement is reinforcing the relationships with the real people in our real lives. I, I, it's so funny you say that. My, my oldest is sort of our... Um, She's not necessarily extroverted by any stretch of the imagination. The other ones are, but she is definitely like sort of the social planner. And, 
you know, the question for so long was, hey, Dad, can we have a game night? Can we have a game night? Can we have a game night? And, you know, we have tons of board games and card games, and they're always teaching me new card games and everything. And I know that because I've had that phone in my hand so many times and doing different things that there's this sort of fear of asking that happens sometimes too. And I'll tell you though, when we have game night, right. And, and we're kind of a, we're kind of a rowdy bunch at our, at our house when it comes down to the, to the games and everything. Like we, um, I think we were the first ones to invent full contact Scrabble, but you know, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) so no, but when we have, when we have game night and everything, I, I don't, I just, everybody's, you know, depending on what the game is, you know, we got a big family. So we always kind of have to stand up and be standing around a table versus sitting down around when everybody's happy, right? Everybody's razzing on each other. That's cheating. That's dirty. That's whatever, but we're having fun and the game ends eventually. And everybody, everybody had a good time. And it's like, I can't say that for sitting in front of a screen. I mean, don't get me wrong. We like movies. I'm not, you know, but I can't say that for, you know, if we were all doing, if two or three of us were on screens over here, the other ones are doing this and everybody's, everybody's occupied. I mean, we always said for us as a family personally, and everyone here on this conversation by definition has a big family in this day and age, all right, with the amount of kids that we have. And we always have said, at least in our family, that big families are just so much fun, right? And, um, and I, I feel like like technology is probably the number one public enemy to having that kind of fun. Whether your family's big or small, it really doesn't matter. If there's more than one of you, you know, there's an opportunity there for, you know, for connection and community. And I just, I, I, you know, look, we want to expose the audience to conversations like this, but ultimately they have to make that decision, don't they? I mean, that's just listening to a podcast isn't going to change anything. But I can tell you, as for me. I, I, there's no good argument that tells me that anything that's happening on that phone will ever be good, you know, ever be better than what we can have in those personal relationships. And I think both of you would agree with that. So that's, that's really what all this comes down to for me. Well, I, I do agree with you, but I guess I would be, maybe I would be, I would nuance it a tiny little bit mm-hmm. because I wouldn't want to say that everything that's on the phone is worse than what's not on the phone. Mm. I actually think that there are lots of ways of interrelating and becoming deeply intimate on a, on a screen, you know, through some sort of social connection sure. that's really powerful and in some cases possibly even life-saving. Mm. So what are so, so that's a great that's a great segue then what are some of the call it the noble and safe uses that you would see that men are really sort of redemptive in their purpose on, on that, that involves screens. Do, do you have some things like that? Or, well, well I want to, I want to ask what we were talking about at the break yeah. um, was I mentioned that uh, my daughter will send a video message, right. And then wait and somebody else sends her a video message back. In fact, I get yelled at all the time, mom, because I'll interject. I'll hear them talking. I'll be like, hi, so they can't hear you, mom. It's just, oh yeah, it's a video. And then they send it back. And so, and you know, that's, that's an important thing. You know, my daughter has said, you can't stop. Like if somebody sends you a video message, you have to, and you're not going to return it. Well, then you have to say, I'm not going to something. I don't even, I still don't know how it works, but you mentioned Mm -hmm. that might, I mean, what do you think about that? Because it's, I feel like just pick up the phone and talk to them. Why are you, you know, why are we sending messages back and forth? But Partly is you can send it to three or four people, right? I can. Yeah. So it's, so it begs the question, what is the meaningful stuff there? And look, Anna, we're not trying to put you on the spot and say, okay, like the sure, great yeah. Anna is going to speak to the morality of the whatever, but you know, but I, but you are an expert in this field. And I, I'm especially convinced of that given even our introduction where you kind of talked about that 20 years ago, you were noticing this problem, right? I don't think any of us were thinking about this. Tw- I've been thinking about it for a few years. But certainly not 20 years. You know, you've been on the forefront of this for a long time. So so what are the noble ways? If we're going to have these pieces of technology, what are some of those ways that you would say, man, these these can be can be meaningful, of course, and, uh, you know, and, and probably are okay that we L- don't have listening to. Listening to dopamine, dopamine Nation on, on, <laughs> yeah, on, on an audio book. book. Yes. <laughs> I yes. Just, just off the subject a tad bit, but I will tell you, I realized just a couple weeks ago, I said to somebody, I said, oh my goodness, I used to love to read books, like really mm-hmm. love to just sit down and read a entire book and through and did not like audiobooks. I listened to them with my children when they were little and when I would get into them sometimes with them, like different, some different books, but generally I want to read. That's a pleasure for me. But I realized just recent, just recently, I can't do it. I, I feel like I can't do it anymore because somehow I'm not being productive. I can listen to this while I, while I rollerblade because that's what I like to do mm-hmm. <laughs> or while I walk. 
And that's an okay thing. Like it feels noble. At the same time, it's like I'm not allowing myself to mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I'm not, it's not productive. And I thought that's mm-hmm. that's a problem. You know, like mm-hmm. that's where our society, I've allowed right. the society message of, hey, look at your product, look at what you can do to be productive mm-hmm. now. And and yeah, I was like, wow, this is really interesting that I mm-hmm. realized it just in a, a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Like, oh no. Mm-hmm. So Anyway, yeah, all of those well, things I, to speak to. Yeah, I, I really appreciate how open you're both willing to be with your own struggles. That's really great. I think that's helpful for everybody to hear that. And I mean, I would say that, you know, the, the ways in which technology has really enhanced our social connections is that it allows us to maintain deep and uninterrupted intimacy with people who we really care about. Um, So, you know, we have a very compartmentalized lives, right? We we are at home with our family and then we have to break away from family and we have to go to work. And then we're with our colleagues and we may love our work, but nonetheless, that's a rupture. Then we're at work and we're doing work and then we have to break away from colleagues. So there are all these little ruptures that are, speaking of traumas, like little mini traumas, because I think that really we're happiest when we're in a tribe and we're with that tribe sort of all the time on an, in an uninterrupted kind of continuous way. So the technology is really allowing us to extend that continuity with our deep, intimate, significant others in a way that I think is positive. So for example, your daughter and my daughter do a lot of asynchronous, um, deeply personal, um, I guess I wouldn't even call them monologues. I would call them dialogues with their friends, but they're asynchronous, right? So my daughter, like your daughter, she will, um, first thing in the morning, she calls her very best friend, Nina, and she just, you know, she's feeling this and she's doing that and she slept this. And I I don't even know what they talk about. They're 15. Uh, But it's, they have a very deep and intimate connection and that first thing in the morning, and then Nina listens to my daughter's thing, and then she responds, and then and that's that's great, you know. To me, that's that's a friendship that the device is allowing that friendship to remain continue. They go to different schools, right? They only see each other at swim practice, but it it, it threads that connection for them through the whole day, which I think you know, is, is a good thing and really positive. And there are so many examples of social media and the internet creating positive, deep internet and people fall in love on the internet and get married and have wonderful marriages. I'm able to treat patients on the internet that live rurally or by virtue of disability or other barrier can't come in and see me. Um, people all over the world are connected to each other, you know, in ways that would not be possible or we're not for social. So I think we have to be very clear that it is both a wonderful revolution and it is there is this seedy underbelly. And we've m- spent most of the last 30 years talking about the wonderfulness and haven't really paid attention to the dark side, which we, we need to pay attention to. But we can't say it's all bad. Right. We don't. That's because it's just not true. Um so I hope that that kind of addresses, you know, what you were getting at. I really just think we need to be thoughtful about how we're using it and what, you know, what the impact is. Um, you know, you ask a little bit about sort of workaholism and that sort of kind of f- feeling like I talk, actually talk about that in Dopamine Nation, how we can actually get addicted to work and just that sense of purpose and engagement that we get from that and then not want and because the devices allow us to work everywhere all the time. It's that much harder to put brakes on and say, okay, I'm, I'm done for the day. We have to do that though. We clearly have to figure out how yeah. to yeah. disengage and, you know, and not be constantly working. So, yeah. but these are all, you know, interesting problems. And I'm optimistic that together we will figure this out. I think it will take a hundred years or more. Um, and of course the technology will change and we're just starting, you know, climbing this mountain, but, but it's a brand new, it's like, what's interesting is like, it's, 
totally unprecedented in the history of humankind. Okay, that's a bad word right now. Unprecedented. I don't want to hear that word anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I said said the year of 2020, if I hear the word unprecedented anymore, it's all precedented now. That's true. Yes. Um, The one thing that we didn't really, we touched on, I guess, earlier about big companies and holding, you know, companies responsible. Um, I, I just thought what I was thinking, you know, what is it, is there something we can do um, you know, for these big companies that have really created apps and things to be addictive, which I understand it's their livelihood, right? This is how they're, they're making a living or, or doing a business, but what can we do? Because we love the technology on some, some but I don't want to be addicted to it. And I want to hold those accountable. And, you know, how, how is that happening to maybe just and I know that's probably a whole nother podcast, but just, I don't know if you can say something about it because I know, and. Well, again, I think here, you know, the, the problems of pollution are a good analogy. We don't allow factories to dump their wastewater into the ocean, right? They have to do something to it first and there are really tight regulations and we have all, you know, we might disagree about what those regulations should be, but everybody agrees there have to be some kind of regulation. What we have right now with Facebook and Google and Snapchat and Twitter, whatever it is, they're really, it's the Wild West. It's really unregulated. And so that that can't continue. We clearly need you know uh, regulations around elections and who gets to promote what and how we need to figure out free speech. You know what is hate speech? What is just people expressing their opinions? So and these are nobody has the answers to these. And I mean you know, but we have we have to start having these discussions. You know, devices and technology in schools. Yeah, in some ways it's great. In some ways it's a complete disaster. Yeah, I just complete. Everybody now has you know attention deficit disorder because all these kids are playing you know League of Legends and Minecrafts when they're supposed to be listening to the teacher. So something went horribly awry there when we said yay technology in every school. So we gotta. You know, we got to unwind. We got to rethink. We, so this is this is the very beginning of all of this. Yeah, I must I must say, um, just as a parent notice here, and I'm actually going to call a reporter later today or tomorrow morning um, because we had a client just this week that um, had was on a school iPad, elementary young elementary school client, and was able to access pornography um, from from the school iPad, which. The parents thought was locked up. It's they locked have up. their they yeah. have their mm-hmm. other personal iPad locked up, but they did not think yeah. about the school. And, and the school tells the kids not to use Safari to use these apps to research, but Safari was still on the iPad, and the mom mm-hmm. couldn't lock it down. So yeah, I'm getting ready to actually talk to some people about figuring out how many right. schools yeah. are like that. Um, and good for you. We have to raise the alarm on that because, you know, you can do everything, you know, within your power as a parent at home and then they go to school. It's like, you know, I remember in my kids in elementary school, you know, we would try to like manage that they didn't get too many sweets. But then every day somebody had a birthday party with cupcakes in school. It's like, I, I can't control that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, yeah, right. Yeah, and I said, yeah. and I said to a parent, I said, you wouldn't have pornography magazines laying around school. Right. And that's, yeah. you know, so that's a right. total another subject. But totally at the same issue. time, it's yeah. still... It's the technology, yeah. right? So. Well, Dr. Anna, we so appreciate your time. And uh, it's it's um, it, it was such a joy to, to talk to you last week and to do the same again today. I feel like I've learned so much in the last, you know, seven days of between those two phone calls. And um, so thank you for that. And I know that for our listeners, our audience, it's going to be the same way. Um, how do they connect with you? I mean, we, it's funny. I asked her, so how do they find you on social media last week? She's like, I, I think you missed the point there. You know, like, <laughs> um, well, I, well, I'm sitting here thinking, I just want to order the book and I'm I know, upset I know, that I you know. already ordered it before me. Well, th- so, but you have the one book, but you've got other books. Um, and, and we'll put those in the description, uh, for the show. What can you tell the audience about those? Well, I have, so this is my second book. Don't this, me okay. Yeah. My, my first book is called Drug Dealer MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop. It's about the origins of the opioid epidemic yes, and also yes. just psychiatric, psychotropic overprescribing in general yeah, as a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's out there. I'm not on social media, so yeah. um, you know, there's I don't really do any of those things. I, I, and, I, and the reason for that is because I just know that I couldn't handle it. Yeah, I would be yeah. Well, I have a question. Or do you see – I know you're – in Stanford, so but do you you see patients still? I mean, I heard you say you treat people. Okay, so you are. I mean, I guess in your state, or I don't know if somebody if you work out of the state too. So yeah, do you, you do see any people virtually? With right? People? I mean, you said for the maybe the special needs situations or whatever, like rural areas. Do you do that for clients in general who might want to maybe do some work with you or you know maybe well, out of state? So- 
Mm-hmm. So we see people only in the state of California because that's right. where we have a license to practice license, medicine. Yeah. And those okay. we can zoom out. We have to only practice where we have license. So, yeah, so we're seeing people all over the state of California now in yeah. our addiction medicine dual diagnosis clinic. Oh, that's cool. And Anybody who is struggling with these problems in the state of California who wants to be seen in our clinic, they could call 650-498-9111 and and ask to be seen in the clinic, and um, we will see them. And they can also be seen virtually, you're saying. Yeah, if they're in California. In in California. Yeah, Yeah, I knew it was California. Well, the unfortunate thing, there's just only a handful of people that live in California, you know, like the Electoral (laughs) College, as I saw yesterday, (laughs) 55. I was like, wow. I was trying to explain that to my daughter. She was up late last night. Dad, who won the election? I'm like... Go to sleep. It ain't gonna happen today. You know, just <laughs> anyways. That's that. Well, and we'll put the, we'll put the links uh, for those uh, for both the pre order for Dopamine Nation and for the other one in the the description below. So grateful for your time and uh, thank you for the work that you did on the the social dilemma as well. And for all of the listeners out there, I cannot encourage watching that enough. I think that that is just one of those sort of sobering gut checks that we kind of need every once in a while just to, to keep us in check as these um, as the evolu- evolution of technology continues. So thank you for that. Um, for anyone out there that's looking to, to connect with us, of course, you can find Life After PTSD on Instagram, and we are reducing our social uh, you know footprint as well. Because <laughs> um, frankly, the, the reality is, is this show is just telling stories here. You know, Do not let the show ever be a replacement for getting help from somebody that you can personally connect with. And so we want you to do that in your area. And uh, we drop episodes like clockwork every single monday so grab a notification on your platform make sure that you're seeing that because we always try to deliver really really good stuff really valuable stuff thank you for listening to life after ptsd and we'll catch you next week thanks guys to learn more about our work visit lifeafterptsd.org if you enjoyed this episode don't forget to subscribe and if you want to support the show give us a five-star review and share it with your tribe become a patron at patreon.com slash life after ptsd Life After PTSD is produced by Jeff McLaughlin. For production inquiries or to sponsor the show, email info at lifeafterptsd.org. Hey, Life After PTSD listeners. We're glad that you love other stories of healing, but what about you? First Orlando Counseling is the premier trauma therapy center in Central Florida with a full staff of trained clinicians ready to help you clear your trauma without re-traumatization. Childhood abuse, relationship abuse, a traumatic car accident, birth trauma, first responder or military trauma, even phobias. You don't have to live like this. It's time for you to heal. Schedule a consultation today by visiting firstorlandocounseling.com or call 407-514-4470. It's that easy.